0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, and this scripture reading can be found in your pew Bibles on page 874. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 and if not while the other is yet a great way off he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple salt is good but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile it is thrown away he who has ears let him hear
1: let us pray our father in heaven who is adequate for these things who can receive the hard words of jesus who can understand these demands Who among us, O Father? Be merciful to us poor sinners today. Give us ears to hear, in fact, as Jesus said. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds to know. Give us will to follow. Bless your church. Build your church. Bring in those outside to your church, into the saved community of the followers of Jesus. Cause us to grow in grace and knowledge today. Be a blessing in our midst to us today. Have your way with us today. We pray for that in Jesus, our Lord's own name. Amen. Amen. Well, the New Testament, of the Bible, tells us that in an interesting way, Noah, talking about the guy with the ark, guy with the animals during the flood, that guy, he was a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't actually have any direct information about what precisely Noah preached, but we can accurately surmise what it had to have been. He preached righteousness, that's what the Bible says. So he had to have preached about the coming judgment of God against sin and about the one and only gracious rescue of God from that judgment on sin in his day, namely the ark. So if you preach the righteousness of God at all, you're preaching the gospel of God's salvation, which is an offer of of rescue and a call to repent. That doesn't take any great scholarship to figure that much out. Now, of course, the popular culture loves Noah and has speculated about how Noah's neighbors must have ridiculed him for building the boat. We don't know if that happened or not. And and, uh, it's speculated that on the day the rain started to fall, people were clamoring to get on board the boat. We don't know any of that either. I don't know if that happened or not. But here's what we do know. Noah preached the righteousness of God, and at the end of the day, there were eight people on that boat, and the rest of humanity was not on that boat. On the day of the flood, therefore, there were only two kinds of people in the world, the ones who were on the boat and the ones who were not on the boat. Now, it turns out that the message of God's righteousness represented a great big fork in the road for them. It was a great big either-or kind of a decision, right? It was, get in or get out. There it was. Now, in our passage of Luke that was just read to us, Jesus Christ is preaching the righteousness of God. He's preaching the kingdom of God that has broken in with his arrival, He's holding out the gospel of God's salvation, which is an offer of rescue, a call to repent, and a powerful, necessary part of his salvation message is get in or get out. Now, that just doesn't sound very friendly to our ears. Uh, Maybe. But it is a simple reality. Coming into God's salvation... Through the work of Jesus Christ is actually an all or nothing proposition. Jesus is calling people to follow him. To believe on him. And his word to us is, follow me all the way or do not follow me. I'm offering kingdom reward and blessing and the rescue from judgment for sin. But you have to get in or get out. There won't be any in-between. So I'm wondering if you understand Christ's call to follow him as an all-or-nothing proposition. Are you clear on what getting in means in terms of leaving behind? Are you ready to hear jesus explained that to you so i invite you to enter into this really simple teaching from our lord if you grasp what he says it can simplify your complicated life his words can give you clarity about everything that you're doing that might be welcome this morning the theme of the message as i put it on that outline in your bulletin is simply this following christ by faith alone is all or nothing. Only those who make Christ all, even unto death, will avoid final humiliation and loss. So let's look at the text together that was just read. Look again uh, at verse 25 of chapter 14. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So now just let that sink in. On the heels of Jesus teaching that the the Messiah himself, as he brings in the kingdom of God, has come to heal sinners from their defilement and their infirmity. And right on the heels of teaching, how God is eagerly filling up his banquet table at the feast. He's passing over the proud, but inviting in the humble. He's including the outcasts, the ones who are blessed to be there, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And And on the heels of driving home the lesson that it's foolish to decline the invitation to feast at the master's banquet because of worldly distractions like getting married or investing in animals and property. Right in line with all that, right on the heels of all that, this happens. A crowd is following Jesus. And he turns and tells them what it really means to follow him and what it really demands. He tells the crowd how hard it is to follow him. Now this is not a contradiction of all that. This is not a contradiction that somehow coming to Christ is different from accepting the invitation to the party, or believing that it's an honor to be asked, and it's a blessing to participate. It's a continuation of that teaching. But there is another angle to it here, and that angle has got to be seen. We've got to be able to stand in this place from this perspective and see what Jesus is saying to us. He says plainly and provocatively, If anyone comes to me, that means comes to follow me, comes to sign on as my disciple, and does not hate his parents, his family, and his own life, no bueno, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he says that two ways. He says you have to hate everybody, and you have to. Carry a cross. What does Jesus mean? Hate everybody? Now, I believe too many efforts have been made to soften the words of Jesus here and to explain them away. People say, well, he doesn't mean hate. He just means make sure you love me the most. Don't love me, don't love them as much as you love me. Don't love yourself as much as you love me. So is that that the whole point? Have a little more love for me than you do for yourself. Let's try to reason this out from the scriptures. Let's not make something unreasonable, irrational of this. First, is it the case that Jesus is saying that true disciples hate their own parents? Wouldn't that contradict the Bible's teaching? The law of God that demands that we honor our father and our mother. Is Jesus just overturning Moses? Well, no, he's not overturning Moses. He told us he'd never do that. So is it the case that Jesus is saying that true disciples hate their spouses? Wouldn't wouldn't that contradict the teaching of the Bible that husbands are supposed to love their wives? Is the Bible contradictory in this way? No, it is not self-contradictory. And what's more, you know, the Apostle Paul instructs husbands to love their wives as they love themselves. He says, no person ever hated his own flesh. And the law of God says we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves based on the assumption that we always do, love ourselves. So let's not try to understand Jesus' words when he comes along and says, hate everybody, hate yourself. Let's not try to understand those words simplistically in a woodenly literal kind of way because Jesus is not prescribing active hate through a lifestyle of malice towards family members or even toward yourself it obviously cannot mean that so let's not be silly but let's not conclude that it doesn't mean something real and something hard because it does mean something real and something hard Now, the second way that Jesus said it helps us to interpret the first way a little bit. First expression. The hatred of family and self is coordinated with, is another way of saying, carrying a cross. Isn't that what he said? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. that's the same thing as saying, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and so on. He's saying the same thing. Now, the metaphor of carrying a cross was pretty well known in the Roman world, the ancient Near East. People who carry crosses are condemned people. They are about to die. They are already on a path whose end is death. What do people like that love? What do people like that possess when they're carrying their cross down the road, the end of which is their death? On the road to crucifixion, there is no luggage and there are no comforting companions on the road carrying a cross at the end of which is your death. Now, don't let the immediate life situation of this teaching escape you don't let the well-known events that shortly come to pass escape you when you hear these words from Jesus whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple because Jesus Christ the son of god god in the flesh born of a virgin came to this earth in order to take up his cross he came to do the will of the Father. And it was the Father's will that Jesus Christ die on the cross for the sins of his people. It pleased the Father to crush him on the cross. In order that he might save his sinful people. It was the Father's will that the Son leave his heavenly family behind and set his face Toward the cross. That's what God wanted for Jesus. So Jesus openly embraced his own death in obedience to God. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And then he gave up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death on the cross made the payment due for sin. His suffering paid the price for our transgressions against God. Jesus Christ's naked Bleeding body should have been our naked bleeding body on the cross. But it was his on our behalf. Only the cross of Christ brings salvation to the world. Brings the salvation of God. Salvation required death. And Jesus died for us. So when Jesus who is on his way to the cross, says that anybody who wants to follow after him must take up a cross, that means something. Don't lose sight of that. It means a follower has to die. That's what it means. It means a believer has to embrace his own death like Jesus embraced his own death. The disciple must be ready to die For the one who did die for him. Now, to hate one's family and one's self while carrying a cross is to leave family and even self behind while taking a road at the end of which is the death of self. Your family and yourself have been hated in the sense that they've been left behind and the consuming interest of them is in the rearview mirror while the place of your death is filling the windshield. In view of the coming cross of Christ, I remind you, I think it's evident, that the death about which Jesus speaks cannot be divorced from actual, literal, physical death. It can't mean less than that, although I think it means more. Nobody can be a disciple of Jesus Christ who is not ready to be put to death on account of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and holding fast to Him against opposition. Jesus says here, get ready to be murdered. Man, I tell you what, you say that and that will sort out the wheat from the chaff real fast. Because cultural Christians, people who are moderate churchgoers, but nothing has happened to transform their lives. Those kind of people will be bailing out like rats leaving a ship when the persecutors show up at the front door. But true followers of Jesus will always say, I will stand and die with him. But even when physical death is not threatened, death to self on a routine basis, is the normal makeup of the Christian life. That has to be in view here. Faith in Christ enters one into a new life with a new heart and a new mind. And that is a mind persuaded that the sacrificing for Jesus' sake is smart. And that's a heart resolved that he is worth it all. And never mind how much it hurts in the meantime. Death to me. Death to my preferences. Death to my personal desires. Death to my plans. All in favor of Christ's life, his kingdom, his church, his people, his coming glory. Now, if you just slow down and think about it, This isn't a new message at all for the people of God. It has really always been just this binary. It's always been just this either or. It's always been just this all or nothing. That's always been the program. Jesus saying this isn't really any different than God saying in Exodus 20 to the children of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. It's the same thing. You have to hate all the other gods, and you have to hate the old life in order to love me as your one and only God. Turning back to Egypt will not be allowed. This isn't any different from what happened in Elijah's day. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. See how that sugars out? It's either or. It's all or nothing. This isn't different than what happened in Joshua's day. When Joshua said to the people, If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, in my house... We will serve the Lord. This isn't any different from what Jesus says pointedly a couple chapters from now. In Luke 16, verse 13, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's right. This isn't different from what Jesus said about the man the merchant who found a pearl of great price, and in his joy he went and sold all that he had so he could purchase it and have it. It's the same thing. It's all the same. Get in or get out. Love and serve me or pick another. You know, in our Sunday school class on reconciling relationships, we slowed down in the first week to focus on the idea that in the ultimate sense, we do not truly owe our neighbor our love. I know that the Bible says we do owe our neighbor our love. We had to drill down and examine what that really means. We, what we arrived at was the understanding that we owe everything to God. We owe all our love to God. And so when God requires that we love our neighbor in the truest sense We don't owe our neighbor that love. We owe God the love of that neighbor. We owe God everything. So we owe God all our love. He's due it all. Even when we love our neighbor, we're just loving God as we ought. That's why those are inextricably linked. That's why St. Augustine famously said, Oh, Lord, he loves you too little who loves anything beside you. We're not for your sake. That's a very profound truth that you ought to go home and think about. That's what Jesus is saying right here. You owe your love to me. Really, all of it. You owe it all to me. Because, dear ones, don't forget, at the end of the day, we are always talking about idolatry. At the end of the day, following Jesus is choosing the one true God and rejecting all the others. And idolatry is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Everything flows from the heart. What do you love? Whom do you love? In this ultimate sense, you can only love one. You cannot love many in the ultimate sense. Only one. That's what was behind Jesus' rather hard words to the man we call the rich young ruler. The young man said to Jesus he had kept the law of God since he was a kid. And Jesus called on him and said, why don't you go sell all your stuff and come follow me? And the Bible says this guy went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Jesus was just exposing the idolatry of his heart in the ultimate sense. A dear old friend of mine teaches that passage from time to time under the title, I've stolen it before, All This and Jesus Too. The rich young ruler wanted all his stuff and Jesus too. And Jesus said, you can have me or you can have all your stuff, but you can't have all this and Jesus too. To choose Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to pick the one path instead of the other. Now, what follows in the text is an illustration of what Jesus already taught. This is what he taught. You're going to come after me. It's me alone. Here's the illustration. Pick it up in verse 28. whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, it might sound to you like Jesus is making a different point, but he's not. He's making the same point. These two parables illustrate the teaching above. Now, these two parables, they feel a bit like their point is, hey, don't start something you can't finish. And indeed, that is part of the point. Don't start something you can't finish. But it's not the whole point. So we got to understand it a little better. So let's look at the two illustrations. First, you take that tower building guy. Jesus says, you know, it's only smart to sit down and calculate how much it's going to cost. To build a tower, you need to estimate the financial cost because it would be humiliating to build three quarters of a tower and leave it unfinished. The whole town would be laughing at that. The builder would be humiliated. Clearly, he ought to have finished this tower. I'm told that's what it looks like a lot of times in our beloved Cameroon where we've helped to build a church building or two. But there are lots of unfinished construction projects, I'm told. That's the first illustration, the tower building guy. And then consider the other guy, the king who goes to war. Jesus says it's only smart to deliberate about troop strength, you know, to estimate the troop cost before getting onto the battlefield. He says it would be better to surrender, which is humiliating, than it would to be crushed on the battlefield, which is even more humiliating. Nobody wants to lose like that. So don't start a tower you can't finish and don't enter a war you can't win. All that's true and all that's part of the point. You have to persevere in these things. But keep the original teaching in mind. What is the cost of the tower What is the troop strength necessary? The financial cost of the tower and the troop cost of the war represent the true cost of discipleship, the cost to you for following Jesus. Don't stumble over the word cost, please, as though cost must mean that you are buying something. Cost means more than that. It means other things than that. You don't buy salvation from Jesus. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. But when you get it, it costs you. And don't pretend that it doesn't, Jesus says. So the financial cost of the tower and the troop cost of the war represent the true cost to you for following Jesus. The cost is stated plainly already. You must hate your father and mother and wife and children and yourself in favor of following Jesus. That is the cost. You must carry a cross dying to yourself. That is the cost. And and, and the reason the illustrations here about finishing or about persevering are on point is simply this. I know you can grasp this. Renouncing everything, leaving everything behind, sacrificing everything is not actually something that can be done once and then it's over. It is something in which one must persist. You have to start doing it and you cannot stop doing it you have to start doing it and you have to finish doing it the exhortation is a way of saying have you considered how costly following me is going to be especially taking into consideration that you must keep paying that cost make sure you're aware that you must finish finishing in sacrifice is the cost and then Jesus wraps this teaching up with a summary illustration and a final exhortation it's in verse 33 to 35 so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple salt is good but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a simple wrap-up. First, he says, no one can be a follower of Jesus who does not renounce all that he has, all his family, all his stuff, all his life. It's all given up and left behind for the sake of following Jesus. That's the path. That's how you choose whom you will serve. And second, it's simple, but we got to figure this salt thing out just a little bit. A little bit of ink has been spilled trying to nuance what this salt illustration has to mean. I'd like to try and keep it simple because I think the overall meaning is inescapably plain. But the controversy about this illustration has to do with salt itself cuz salt, pure salt doesn't lose its taste. It it doesn't go bad. It's a stable compound. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. My engineering and chemically oriented friends, assure me. Stable compound. Now, on the other hand, ancient Near Eastern salt from the Dead Sea is not pure sodium chloride at all. It's a bunch of other stuff in there, some of which you wouldn't even want to know about, gypsum and other stuff, and it's some stuff in there that can go bad. So it turns out when ancient Near Eastern salt is stored poorly and water gets into it, the good stuff can leach out and what's left really is good for nothing but at the end it doesn't matter whether the you take the parable as a little bit hypothetical as in well salt can't really go bad but if salt did go bad it would be useless wouldn't it yes it would or <laughs> or whether the parable is a little more literal when you know when our kind of salt goes bad it's really useless isn't it again yes it is so that's the point, either way, is the uselessness of it. Make the connection. Anyone who starts out apparently believing in Christ and following him in faith by denying himself and leaving everything for Jesus, but then doesn't keep denying himself and keep leaving everything for Jesus, turns out to be worthless he turns out to have worthless faith in Christ because discipleship with Christ, faith in Christ is for the long haul and the cost doesn't change. The person who starts out announcing his intention to follow Christ for the rest of his life and signaling the commencement of leaving everything behind and hating everything in favor of Christ, but then doesn't finish doing that, well, that person is going to be in the pitiable state of those people in verses 16 to 24, the ones who rejected the invitation to the banquet because they had a lot of other stuff to attend to. That, that person will be in the humiliated state of the person in verses 28 to 30 who left a half built tower in his neighborhood and got ridiculed for it that person will be in the crushed and humiliated state of the king in verses 31 and 32 who got his head handed to him losing everything he didn't finish he didn't count the cost in order to finish following jesus costs you Leaving everything. And leaving everything is for the long haul. Those are the hard words of Jesus. So what do we do with those? What do we do with all or nothing discipleship? Today, for us, can we be practical about this? What do you do with it? Well, I just feel... First of all, that I can't fail to stop and plead with some of you sitting here today. Some of you, I could call out your name right now, who have not followed Jesus yet. And some of you that I just don't know, but I bet others who haven't followed Jesus yet. And I'll be honest with you that this passage presents me with a challenge In pleading with you about that. You know the Apostle Paul when he talked about his own ministry of gospel preaching. He called himself an ambassador for Christ. And said his job was to plead with people to be reconciled to God. He said we implore you to be reconciled to God. He he said I'm a preacher and because I know the fear of the Lord. I'm persuading people. Uh, And I want to implore some of you today to be reconciled to God. I want to persuade some of you. Some of you are my friends who stand outside of Christ today. I want to implore you and persuade you to come to Christ by faith today. But I don't want to fall into the trap or lead you into the trap that's been laid in our day and that has ensnared so many. And that is the trap of ignoring the very passage we just tried to preach. Because in our day, a gospel is presented in such a way as to contradict or render meaningless the words of Jesus in our passage. There is offered a supposed gospel that does not require counting the cost before signing on. There is offered a supposed gospel that does not require dying to oneself in order to follow Jesus. There is offered a painless, unintrusive easy-to-swallow gospel that simply says, believe on Jesus, that is, accept that his salvation is true, and then go about your business. Nothing else ever needs to change. And countless multitudes in the last hundred years, probably longer, have signed on to a gospel like that. It's an easy-belief gospel. It's a gospel that does not force you to choose Jesus over everything else. It's a gospel that does not represent a fork in the road of the rest of your life. It's a gospel that does not ask you to abandon everything in order to follow Jesus and to keep following him forever. That gospel lets you Claim forgiveness and let you wear the badge of Christian self-identification and let you try to feel relieved that God's not mad at you anymore, but it never requires that you turn from all your idols and serve the one true God. It never requires you to die to yourself. It never requires you to suffer for the sake of righteousness. It never costs you anything. And that, the Bible makes plain, is no gospel at all. That's not a gospel that can save you. That's not the gospel that's the gift of God. That is a convenient human philosophy that helps people feel better about themselves, and I don't have any time for that in talking to you this morning. It's a message that never leads people to see that they are so thoroughly lost that the only hope is the rescuing work of a Savior who stands outside of them and who leads them to die to themselves so they can live to God. So I want to persuade you. I want to implore you, my friend, to come to Christ, counting the cost, knowing that coming to Him means leaving everything behind and not looking back. I implore you to see That sin has you in just such a desperate place that this is your only hope. Your lost condition is utterly hopeless. You will never get better. You will never please God. You will never overcome your own bondage to sin. You will never escape the coming wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Only Jesus can save you. And Jesus calls people to follow him while leaving everything else behind. So I implore you today to stop denying the truth that stares you in the face. I beg you to cast aside every other hope and run to Christ. He alone can save you. His death. On the cross is your only possible hope. Can you see your need for forgiveness? Can you understand your danger in facing the judgment of God with no excuse? I'm asking you, will you have Christ? Will you leave every other idea behind and come to him? Will you abandon every other love and every other pleasure and come follow him? Will you take up a cross and start down the road at the end of which is your death? Now, dear ones, this is still an invitation to a banquet. It's still the promise of a party. It's not a different message. But it's not an easy believe invitation, is it? Because there is no easy believe Faith in Christ is hard because we are sinners. And as sinners, we don't want to let go of anything, much less let go of everything. But that is the call to faith. There is no faith that does not leave all to lay hold of Jesus. That's the nature of coming to him by faith alone. I say to you, my unbelieving friend, will you come? Come. Come to Christ. What do the rest of us do who have come to Christ, but for whom these words remain hard? They remain sobering. They ought to anyway. We shouldn't blow them off. What do we do? Well, I say, as I put it in your bulletin, we must confront the threats to continually making Christ all because we have to finish, right? We don't just start leaving all. We got to finish leaving all. So, first, the first part of confronting the threats is to identify them. What are the things that pose a threat to you as a believer continuing to make Christ all? There, there are threats or else there's no reason for Jesus to make so earnest of a plea for his fo- followers to soberly count the cost. Please do not attempt to answer this question by dodging it theologically. Don't, don't go right into your doctrine of eternal security and say, I can't lose my salvation. I couldn't possibly fail to make Christ my all. Just consider the question more deeply than that, at the, especially at the experience and practice level. When you ask it clinically, is there a risk that you would turn from trusting Christ to trusting something else? You don't feel very proud. You know I could never do that. You're not feeling prideful. But if you ask that question more personally and in terms of our passage, and you ask, is there a risk that I would stop hating and kind of resume loving my father and my mother and my wife and children my brothers and sisters and, uh, yeah, my own life. Then that answer ought to at least give you pause, my brother and my sister, that you don't just blow that question off too quick. Are you at risk of returning to loving your own life? That's a fair question. Are you at risk of not continuing to leave everything in favor of following Jesus? You need to think about that. Now, have you ever heard of hoarders? I've known some actual cases of people who were serious, debilitating hoarders. I have come to the door of a house where there was no place to walk, no place to sit, no way to maneuver in the kitchen. I've been in a house where the only path at all was like a little tunnel between stacks of things from floor to ceiling, kind of mm, of like being in a, video game now (laughs) my wife and I are not hoarders in that tragic sense my kids might beg to differ (laughs) but uh, what do they know (laughs) but I can admit that we've struggled over the years to thin things out we've accumulated a lot of stuff through inheritance and just time and we've held on to some things that we hoped would be useful again one day And then we've decided that we need to make room and get stuff out, and we've had some great successes in our lives over the years. We've had some mega yard sales and made some giant runs to the dump and given away tons of things. But the truth is there is a kind of a cycle to it if you're not careful. You can thin out, and you can dispossess, and you can sell off, and you can throw away, and you can get down to the minimum, but just let a little time go by, and before you know it, things will start to accumulate again. I keep throwing out magazines. They keep coming in the mail. (laughs) There are a lot of other things to acquire. There's always more stuff to have and to hold. I think the challenge of hating everything and following Jesus is a little bit like that. You can leave everything behind and choose Christ, but over time there will come along some other things to have and to hold. You can declare that you love Christ above all and hate everything else. But over time, there will come along some other people and other things to love. So your heart has to be vigilant. Especially when it comes right down to hating your own life and taking up your own cross. You have to be vigilant. The thing about dying is that you can only literally die once. But the thing about being ready to die is that you must remain ready to die perpetually. That is the nature of a living sacrifice, isn't it? It means always dying. So ask yourself, do I still hate my own life? Or have I grown increasingly invested in the pursuit of my own comfort, my own plans, my own desires, And and the question's not going to be whether you have formally turned aside from Christ in favor of pursuing these other things. The question will be whether you have eased off from leaving all these things to follow Jesus and slipped over into a mindset that wants to have all this and Jesus too. So... As you've gotten older, has retirement grown in your mind and in your vision? Are you now orienting your life toward your grandchildren? Are you starting to position yourself for more travel and more leisure? Is health management your growing obsession? Or let's not just pick on old people. (laughs) Younger folk, as you've just moved into marriage and parenting, is your life now revolving around education and preparation? Is everything now about your family? Is everything now about your career? This is my window. After leaving everything behind, are you starting to want some of it back? That's the question. Now, you understand, don't you? Nobody has said that any of those things I just named are intrinsically evil things. They're not intrinsically evil things. The question is not whether those are evil things. The question is whether you're loving the things that you cannot love if you wish to follow Jesus. So are you starting to love those things? Because remember, at the end of the day, we're still talking about choose this day whom you will serve. At the end of the day, we're still talking about you shall have no other gods before me. At the end of the day, we're still talking about limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. At the end of the day, Jesus is still saying, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So assess and identify the threats to you leaving everything. And then I would say also on the other side of the equation, cultivate the better love. Don't just remain in the defensive posture of assessing threats and defending against those. You know, in our real recovery ministry, we're making use, we have for years, of a book by Ferguson called Devoted to God. And in that book, he helps us understand that holiness, in its essence, is not really about separation from sin. It's rather about positive devotion to God. That means functionally that holiness is not so much about saying no to things as it is about saying yes to God. And so the more we learn to love and treasure the Lord, the less we will love other things. A very practical thing, therefore, to do is to strengthen your discipleship, to be strong in following Jesus and continuing to leave everything else, by not just looking for things to leave behind, but primarily by looking toward the one whom you love and follow. You can cultivate and strengthen your love for him. You can do this by gazing upon him as he is in his word. You can do this by meditating upon him as he's held forth in the preaching of his word. You can do this by prayerfully engaging with him whom your, whole, your soul desires. And you can ask him for more desire. Cultivating stronger love for Christ. Dear ones, it's never going to be drudgery if you do it. It can't be because he is altogether excellent and beautiful and winsome and marvelous. And you've already been given eyes to see him and ears to hear him. The more you look and the more you listen, the more you will love. There's nothing not to love about Jesus. And the more you learn to love Jesus, the less work it will be not to love other things. So I ask you, is it not good news after all that Jesus has called us to be his followers? Isn't that the gracious gift of God? Isn't it good news that he's invited us to his banquet? Isn't he worth leaving behind all those lands and people and lesser loves in favor of him alone? I pray God give us all the grace to follow Jesus and may the love of him cause everything else to recede. For Jesus' sake, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for the hard words of Jesus. We bless you because they come to us in your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit, not as a demand to perform that which we cannot do, but rather as an instruction for how your grace will be lived out in our lives and how to embrace it. So we say yes to you. We say yes to following Jesus. We say yes to hating our own lives and carrying our cross because we love you, and we want to sit at your table, and we thank you for these things. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.